Tomorrow, as, as many of you know, will mark the 74th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was a sober and sad day in the history of the United States of America. It is a day that has been remembered, and I am confident will continue to be remembered. The very next day, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered a speech to Congress that has also been remembered. On Friday, I listened to the speech, and as, as many of you know, uh, President Roosevelt declared that December 7th would be a day that would live in infamy. Later in the speech, Roosevelt also said this. He said, quote, But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. That day would live on and has lived on in the memory of the American public, just as President Roosevelt predicted. For a moment... I want to pause and ask you this, how, how do you think that date lives on in the memory of the American public? I'm not asking why, I'm not asking why the date lives on, but how? For that matter, how is it that any event, any date, or anything lives on in the memory of a people? Significant events, consequential events, live on in the memory of a people through the conscious and purposeful retelling, recalling, and revisiting those events. This process of remembering is not something that is unique to the experience of the American public. This process of remembering has been around since the beginning of the world. What is more, the God who made the world calls people to remember. The call to remember appears dozens and dozens of times in the scriptures. We even see the practice of remembering occurring several times over. That is what we encounter in the passage that we're studying together today, Numbers chapter 33, verses 1 through 49. In Numbers chapter 33, verses 1 through 49, we encounter a remembrance of Israel's journey from Egypt to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. Now, if you've, if you've read the text in advance, and I always encourage you to try and read, read the passage in advance, then you know that the text seems like a, a strange list of difficult-to-pronounce names and places. Uh, and, and what we need to recognize as we read this is that there is significance layered behind these names and these campsites and these cities. There are lessons that the people of Israel learned from their long journey home. Those hearing this passage read would have heard the name Mara or Elim or Kadesh and they would have remembered all that happened there. Just like when you hear the words Pearl Harbor and you remember all that happened there. It is my prayer that as we look at Numbers 33, we will begin to learn the significance of the lesson that the Lord is teaching the people of Israel as they heard the names of these places read. It is my prayer that we will learn that our God can be trusted in the midst of tests and trials because Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers 33, Numbers chapter 33. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 141 of the Bibles provided. 
Uh, we're only going to be looking at the first 49 verses of this chapter this morning. And as we prepare for those verses, let's remember a little bit about where we are in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is about God leading the people of Israel from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. Now, our text actually includes history prior to that history uh, that is mainly in view in the events of the book of Numbers. In other words, uh, Numbers chapter 33 verses 1 to 49 not only includes the history of Israel journeying through the wilderness, but it also includes the history of the people of Israel before that journey. This is not at all unusual. For Moses is constantly revisiting and retelling Israel's history and God's saving power display in Israel's history. Why would Moses do such a thing? Why would he so often repeat, recall, and revisit Israel's history? And the short answer is because he wants them to remember it. Moses wants the people of Israel to remember their history and to remember how their God has acted so graciously toward them in the course of their history. Remembering our history and God's saving action is why in every sermon I explain the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Remembering our history and God's saving action is why in every sermon I remind you of, of what the book that we're studying is about and what has happened in it before we actually look at the text. We need to have this history drilled into our minds so that we know what the book of Numbers is about and so that we don't rip the, rip the text out of context. When you are weary and you feel like you've just been marching aimlessly through life, just putting one foot in front of the other, day after day, month after month, year after year, and you're weary, I want you to remember the book of Numbers. I want you to remember that the Lord was leading his people through the wilderness and that he was leading them somewhere. He was leading them home. Even when it felt like he was leading them from one random place to the next. Christian, I want you to remember that you are a pilgrim and stranger and sojourner wandering through the wilderness of this world. And I want you to remember that God is with you and that he is leading you home. And that's not going to happen you're not going to remember unless we recall the history, unless we retell God's grace, or unless we revisit what has happened in this book. And that's what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon. We're going to remember the history that we've already been told so that we remember our God can be trusted in the midst of tests and trials because Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. We're going to study Numbers chapter 33, verses 1 through 49 under three headings. Remember God's triumph. Remember your travels. And remember to trust. These three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I think you can find an outline of the sermon provided uh, in a handout in the bulletin. Let's begin with our first, first point. Remember God's triumph. And as we do, read Numbers 33, uh, verses 1 to 4. Numbers 33, verses 1 to 4. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month 
on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. In these verses, we are greeted with an introduction to the official travelogue of the people of Israel. We're reminded there in verse 1 that the travels which are recorded in the subsequent verses occurred under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And that this journey began all the way back in the land of Egypt. The journey began with a going out of Egypt. And we'll think more about that in a moment. But we can already tell that Moses is wanting to jog the memories of his hearers and readers with that language of coming out of Egypt. I don't know about you, but I found verse 2 fascinating. Did you notice that in verse 2 that Moses wrote down Israel's starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord? What we read in the verses that follow is an outworking of Moses' obedience to the Lord's command. Moses wrote down all of these starting places, all of these encampments, and all of these allusions to historic events because the Lord commanded him to do so. The Christian faith is a historic faith because our God is the God of history. He plans history. He pursues its outworking and he is providentially involved in history. He makes his grace and glory known through history. In verse 3, we're given the where and the when of the beginning of Israel's journey. Israel's journey began in Ramses. In other words, they, they left Egypt in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. More specifically, they left the day after the Passover. And did you notice how their departure is described? Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Verse 3 is just loaded with significance that Moses' first readers would have understood as they heard those words read. Perhaps the first question that we need to ask ourselves is this. What were the people of Israel doing in Egypt? And how is it that the story of the Bible got there? Well, as the Bible opens, we learn that God created the universe and all that's in it. He created the first man and the first woman to have fellowship with him in a beautiful garden. Sadly, Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were thrust out of the garden and out of his presence. And just before they were made to leave, God made a promise. God promised Adam and Eve that one day a savior would come from the seed of the woman and that he would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the storyline of the Bible is an outworking of that promise. As readers, we are constantly asking ourselves, how will God keep that promise? As the book of Genesis unfolds, as an outworking of God's promise to Adam and Eve, we learn that God had begun to form a people for himself. He promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. God even promises that one of Abraham's offspring would bless the nations. When we read about that in the book of Genesis, our hopes are kindled and we think, okay, so this is how God is going to keep his promise to save his people. This is how God is going to defeat the serpent, to defeat sin and death. And as the story moves along, Abraham's offspring multiply. 
But then, they're suddenly enslaved in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we read of God's people suffering under the burden of Pharaoh's enormous and constant building projects. In an act of genocide, Pharaoh even began to kill off all of the baby boys from the people of Israel. Now, as careful readers of the storyline of the Bible, this should immediately raise great concerns for us. For this endangers God's promise to raise up a savior from Abraham's offspring. In reading this story, instead of the hope of the serpent's head being crushed, our hopes of salvation are slowly being crushed as Pharaoh acts as an agent of the serpent. If Israel doesn't exist anymore, how then will God bring his promise to save his people from the nations of the earth to pass? How on earth will Israel escape the wrath of Egypt, the greatest empire on earth? God heard the groans of his people. And he answered their call by raising up Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out from under Pharaoh's mighty hand, out of slavery and out of Egypt. And he led them out, as Moses said, triumphantly. After sending ten harrowing plagues of judgment upon the people of Egypt, Pharaoh finally let the Lord's people go. And the last plague, was tied to the Passover that's mentioned there in verse 3. The Passover is described in Exodus chapter 12, and it was the night that the Lord passed over the homes of the people of Israel and spared their firstborn sons from judgment and death. The people of Israel were spared because in faith they had put to death a spotless lamb and spread its blood across the top and the side of the doorposts of their home. That sacrificial lamb bore the judgment that their sons would have borne. The people of Egypt were not so fortunate. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn captive who was in the dungeon, and even the firstborn of the livestock. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. The people of Israel were leaving in triumph, while their Egyptian neighbors were grieving over the graves of their firstborn sons. When we read passages like Exodus 12, we're left with questions like, what kind of God does this? And why does he do it? The answer that the Bible gives is this. God is good and holy and just. He hates the wicked and punishes sin. The Bible also tells us that he is gracious, that he spares all of those who turn from their wickedness and sin and put their faith in him. That was why Israel was free to leave Egypt not merely in triumph, but also with their firstborn sons alive. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were so anxious for the people of Israel to leave that they allowed the people of Israel to take all of their flocks and herds as they left. We even learn in Exodus chapter 12, verse 36, that the Lord had given the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, the people of Israel asked for their gold and treasures as they left Egypt, and the Egyptians gave them 
to Israel. Israel didn't have to lift a finger to defeat the mighty Egyptian army. Instead, they simply had to trust the Lord and obey Him. Their trust led to triumph. Israel trusted in the one true God, while the people of Egypt trusted in false gods. And so it's it's no surprise that Moses mentions their defeat there at the end of verse 4. This was how Israel's journey began. With God triumphantly rescuing and redeeming His people from slavery. God rescued Israel from the most powerful ruler and nation on earth. They had no need to worry about any other nation they faced. They had no need to fear, except to fear and revere the one who loved and saved them by his grace. So often, this is how the Christian life begins, isn't it? It begins in triumph. It begins in turning away from sin and believing that Jesus and his triumph over sin and death through the cross and resurrection It begins with being redeemed from slavery to sin. John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. It begins with the defeat of a powerful ruler, the serpent, Satan, and the destruction of his power in our lives. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It begins with Jesus now leading a host of captives of his grace. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, let us remember and rejoice in God's triumph in our lives. If you have followed Jesus for any length of time, then you know that triumph is often followed by trials and testing as you travel through life. And that is what we see in Israel's travels as well. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Remember your travels. Remember your travels. And let's read uh, Numbers 33, verses 5 through 15. Numbers 33, verses 5 through 15. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Haharoth, which is east of Baal-Zephon. And they camped before Migdal. And they set out from before Haharoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they set out and they, and they camped there. And they set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. And they set out from Dovka and camped at Elush. And they set out from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. The verses that we just read cover Israel's travel from Egypt to Mount Sinai. In fact, verses 5 through 49 Uh, there appear to be three distinct sections recounting Israel's journeys. Uh, Verses 5 through 15, as I said, recount Israel's journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, which we learn about in the book of Exodus. Verses 16 through 36, then, recount Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh, which we learn about here in the book of Numbers. And then verses 37 to 49 recount Israel's travels from Kadesh 
to the plains of Moab, which is on the edge of the promised land. All told, there appear to be some 42 destinations or locations in the course of Israel's travel. We can learn from each of these stages of Israel's travel, for as Christians, we often go through different trials and different seasons of life. Now, we're not going to look at at every single destination uh, in each of these sections because some of these stops are are not mentioned in other places uh, in the Exodus or Numbers account, but a handful of them are. I'm even going to combine some of the locations because some of them include similar tests and trials. Let's begin with Israel's travels from Mount Sinai, uh, sorry, from from Egypt to Mount Sinai, which we find there in verses uh, 5 through 15. You'll notice there in verses 5 through 7, Moses is clearly chronicling Israel's journey away from Egypt. And it isn't until until we get to verse 8 that we're told that Israel passed through the midst of of the sea into the wilderness. Now that subtle reference would have reminded the readers of Numbers what took place in Exodus 14. After letting the people of Israel go, Pharaoh, he changed his mind and took his army to pursue the people of Israel. With their backs at the Red Sea and the army of Egypt bearing down upon them, the Lord stood between Israel and the Egyptian army. He parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel to walk across on dry ground. And after Israel was brought safely through, the army of Egypt entered into the sea, also hoping to cross. And it was then that the Lord suddenly closed the waters upon their heads. This is what the people of Israel would have been remembering as they heard these words. Pharaoh and his army would threaten them no more. A vast superpower was suddenly brought to ruin. This trial proved to Israel that God could be trusted, even when backed into a corner. They should have remembered that at Marah, which is also mentioned there in verse 8. Three days after God's victory over Egypt in the wilderness, in the waters of the Red Sea, the people of Israel complained and grumbled about the bitter waters of Marah. From one body of water to another. Surely, if God could command the waters of the Red Sea to come and go at His command, He could provide water for Israel to drink at Marah. God was testing Israel at Marah. He was showing them that He could be trusted in trials. The Lord knew that Israel needed water to physically live. But even more than they needed water, God knew that they needed Him. God was driving his people to himself at Marah. But instead of turning to him for help, they turned to Moses and complained. Moses interceded for the people of Israel. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard Moses cry for help. God, he showed Moses a log that when thrown into the water, miraculously changed the water from bitter to sweet. In Exodus 17, virtually that virtually the same thing happened at Rephidim, which is mentioned there in verse 13. It was another water test. Once again, the people of Israel were confronted with their thirst and they complained to Moses. It was there that Moses struck the rock with his staff and gave Israel water to drink. With Moses' actions, the people of Israel were visibly reminded that the same God who poured out plagues upon Egypt through the staff of Moses has the power to provide for his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, 
The Apostle Paul says that the rock which Israel drank from was Christ. In other words, the rock symbolized and pointed to Christ. Christian, be sure to remember that because of your sin, our rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, was struck. And out of him flows rivers of living water for the blessing of his people. Let us also remember that sometimes God uses trials to teach us that he can be trusted. Before complaining, let's consider that our God might be using the trial to conform us more closely to the image of Christ and to share in his sufferings. From Marah, the Lord led the people of Israel to Elim, which is mentioned there in verse 9. From verse 9 and Exodus chapter 15, verse 27, we learn that Elim is an oasis of sorts. How helpful to have an oasis in the desert, right? There's a spring of water for each tribe of Israel, and there's shade to be found in those 70 trees. The number of trees and springs are common numbers that we see in the scriptures. And they're often numbers that reflect a completion or a wholeness. In one sense, what we're looking at here in Elim is, is a return to a garden-like environment, a paradise, which we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There was even a similar injunction that the Lord gave to his people at Elim like we see in Eden. Remember the Lord told Adam and Eve, uh, you, you may eat of every tree in the garden of, the, uh, of Eden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good, uh, good and evil. If you obey me, you will live. Well, at Elim, the Lord instructs the people of Israel to obey my commands. He says, if you do, you will prosper. You will live and prosper. That's what God told Adam and Eve. It's essentially what he told Israel at Elim. In another sense, what the, the people of Israel experienced at Elim in this garden-like oasis in the desert is a foretaste of what they're going to experience in the land that the Lord is giving to them, the promised land. The Christian life is a lot like that of an Israelite in the desert. Christians are pilgrims on their way home to the promised land of heaven. We are following God as he has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're aiming at keeping God's commands because we love him and because of what he has done for us in redeeming us from slavery. And we are longing for a better home than our current one. Last week, our brother Derek Morgan, he encouraged us to enjoy the small and simple things in life and to give thanks to God in doing so. Derek gave us a good word in that regard. The blessings that we experience in this life, we should richly enjoy. And we should pray that God would use them to stir our desires to be at home in heaven with Him. In God's kindness, we're going to find an oasis in the wilderness from time to time. And still, we need to remember that we are not home yet. Draw strength from that place of rest and refuge and keep marching on, just as Israel did. Eventually, eventually Israel marched to the wilderness of sin, as verse 11 mentions. There in the wilderness of sin, they complained about food. Exodus chapter 16 tells us that the people of Israel expressed that they would rather die with their stomachs full in the land of Egypt as slaves than be hungry free men and women who experienced the grace and provision of God time and time again. What is remarkable in Exodus 16 is that God gets what he does not deserve. 
the grumbling of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel get what they do not deserve. Food directly from heaven. That food directly from heaven is evidence of God's patience and grace with His people. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that He is the bread of heaven. He too did not get what He deserved. The punishment due to the sins of His people. And His people, as His people, we do not get what we deserve. His perfect righteousness and eternal life. Are you not amazed by God's patience and mercy and grace with you? How is it that the Lord puts up with such intolerable people like the people of Israel? How is it that He doesn't just put up with us, but that He sends His Son from heaven to love us to the point of death? In verse 15, we're told that the people of Israel made it safely to Sinai. At Sinai, the Lord gave the people of Israel His law and His will for them. And at Sinai, He bound Himself to them in a covenant commitment, declaring them to be His nation, His people, to reflect His character to the watching world. As you probably know, the the book of Numbers opens at Mount Sinai where a census of the people of Israel is conducted. In that census, we learn that the Lord has been faithful to keep His promises to make Abraham a great nation. And we also learn that Israel is now equipped with an army of men ready to conquer the land that God has promised. Verses 16 to 36 chronicle Israel's journey from Sinai to Kadesh. This is a new stage that we move into. In Numbers 10, the people of Israel, they they set out from Mount Sinai. And one chapter later, we're hearing the people of Israel complain about food again this time demanding meat. It's almost a replay of what happened with Israel's departure from Egypt. It was a matter of mere days after leaving Egypt that Israel started complaining. And they did it again when they left Sinai. As an act of judgment, the Lord gave the people of Israel meat. He gave them just what they wanted at Kaibaroth Habatah, mentioned there in verse 16. The people would have shuddered at hearing the name of that campsite, thinking, do you remember what happened there? Listen to uh, what we read in Numbers chapter 11, verse 34. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kaibaroth Havatah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Now, it's no longer the people of Egypt burying their dead, but it's Israel burying their dead. Do you see where sin leads? Sin leads to destruction and death. Sin leads to the grave. It always has and always will until the return of Jesus Christ. Hazaroth, mentioned in verse 17, did not hold much better fortunes for the people of Israel. It was recorded uh, in Numbers 11 there that Miriam and, and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, challenged Moses' place among God's people. They thought that their anointing with the Spirit entitled them to a similar position of prominence among God's people. They opposed God's appointed mediator. Miriam was struck with leprosy. And Moses mercifully pleaded with the Lord to forgive her and to cleanse her of her disease. The Lord may have temporarily anointed Miriam and Aaron with the Spirit, 
But that anointing did not amount to God appointing them to be the mediator between God and His people. That position and privilege and burden was given by God to Moses. Only God can appoint a mediator. Miriam and Aaron could not appoint themselves as mediators. There could only be one mediator between God and His people. And God would give and did give His people that mediator in Moses. The book of Hebrews teaches us to see Moses as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. A shadow of what was to truly come in Jesus Christ. Here's the argument of Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. If Moses, as a God-given servant and mediator, was to be obeyed by Aaron and Miriam and Israel in the wilderness, then how much more ought Jesus to be obeyed, who was not merely a servant, but a son over God's house. When we sin, we are challenging the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us love, honor, and obey Him. From verses 18 to 35, it's difficult to tie any particular events to locations. They were certainly stops along the way. Sadly, we, we do know, however, what took place at Kadesh that's mentioned there in verse 36. Israel left Kadesh, as verse 37 says, because in Numbers 14, they refused to enter into the promised land of Canaan at the Lord's command. It was quite a startling decision by the people of Israel because that was the whole reason that the nation left Mount Sinai. It's the whole reason for their journey from Egypt. In response, the Lord promised that the older generation, everyone 20 years old and up, would die in the wilderness. And that is how Numbers 14 ended. It ended with the beginning of the end of the older generation. Listen to how Numbers uh, chapter 14 ends in verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. Israel was defeated and pursued. In the storyline of Numbers, we had moved far from the hope of entering the land that God had promised in victory to running away from the land in defeat. Israel's rebellion against the command of the Lord cast a long and dark shadow into their future. That shadow continues to hang over verses 37 through 49 as we follow Israel's 40 years of travels from Kadesh to the plains of Moab. These verses cover the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness while the older generation died and the younger generation was raised up. We're greeted with that reality right away in verses 38 and 39 when the death of Aaron is mentioned. Aaron was the high priest of the older generation, the Exodus generation. In the narrative numbers, his death, which is recorded at the end of Numbers 20, was the signal that Israel's 40 years in the wilderness was coming to a close. Verse 40 mentions the king of Arad, which reminds us of what happened immediately after Aaron's death. The people of Israel win a victory where they had previously been defeated. They were previously defeated by the Canaanites at the end of chapter 14. But here with the rise of the new generation, things seem to be moving in a different and more positive direction until what happened before happens again. The people of Israel once again complain about food. 
The sins of the older generation have bitten and poisoned the younger generation, just like the snakes who entered the camp of Israel in Numbers chapter 21. The younger generation suffered under the Lord's judgment until they in faith looked to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up. When they looked to the bronze serpent, they were healed. This bronze serpent ultimately points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself told us that that was the case in John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus reads Numbers 21 as a type foreshadowing his cross work. Just as that serpent was lifted up so the people of Israel might have physical life, so Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross. And just as the people of Israel had to look to the bronze serpent for physical healing, so we have to look to Jesus Christ for spiritual healing. The younger generation in the book of Numbers is just as sinful as the older generation. And they needed to continue to repent, to turn away from their sin, and to believe. They needed to continue to look to the Lord in faith and live. As we learn about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. The Lord uses discipline to direct us into the path of righteousness, into the path of repentance, and into the path of life. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Too often, we view the Lord's discipline as unloving. And the truth is that the Lord has told us that His discipline is loving. The Lord's discipline is loving and it has life-giving effects for those who have been trained by it. And perhaps that's why the campsites of verses 41 to 47 are listed together. These are places basically mentioned in the last 25 verses or so of Numbers chapter 21. They are something of an account of Israel's travels and actually victories. Something is missing from that account. All of the grumbling and complaining that we've been seeing throughout the course of Israel's journeys are absent. Perhaps what is implied by that is that the younger generation was growing and maturing in the faith. Nevertheless, in the midst of this maturing, there was also mourning. Toward the end of verse 47, we're told of the mountains of Abiram, and in particular of Nebo. When this reference hit the ears of the readers of the book of Numbers, they would have remembered that this was the place where Moses would die and be gathered to his fathers. Thus, the final two verses of Numbers 33 were perhaps written by a faithful hand after Moses had died. Whatever the case may be, they completed the travelogue and they set the people of Israel on the border of the promised land in the plains of Moab. Israel was poised yet again to enter this time, led by Joshua and a new high priest named Eleazar. We're left with anticipations and hopes for Israel as they prepare to finish the journey home. I hope that as we've remembered this history, your faith has been encouraged, that you've thought about your own history, where the Lord has been with you through trials, where he has provided for you yet again, even when your faith has been weak. In the face of Israel's faithlessness, 
God has remained faithful. Where they've grumbled, he's been gracious. Where they've complained, he's been compassionate. Where they have disobeyed, he has disciplined them and led them to repentance. Wherever they have been tested, whatever trial they have faced, what has been clear is that God can be trusted. If God could be trusted through the dangerous desert, then he could be trusted with the conquest of Canaan. This is what the people of Israel needed to know as they prepared to enter Canaan. They didn't need to remember a list of places just to know a list of places. They needed to remember the name of one person, Yahweh, and what he did for them at each and every place. They needed to remember his presence with them at every place they went, and they needed to remember the lessons they learned from the men who led them along the way. I don't know if you noticed this, but two individuals in particular are portrayed as trusting in the Lord in Numbers chapter 33. Both Moses and Aaron are portrayed as showing their faith in God through their obedience to Him in the dangerous desert. So let's now turn and briefly consider our final point. Remember to trust and obey. Uh, Read Numbers chapter 33 verses 1 and 2. So back to the beginning of the chapter. Numbers 33 verses 1 and 2. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. Now, flip back toward the end of the chapter again. Take a look at verses 38 and 39. Consider Aaron's obedience. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And as I said just a few minutes ago there at the end of verse 47, 47, with a reference to the mountains of Abiram and to Nebo in particular, we're reminded that Moses in obedience to God, would also make his way up a mountain and die. Moses obeyed the command of God and wrote down this travel log. Moses and Aaron both obeyed the command of the Lord, knowing that they were walking up those mountains to die. Separate mountains, they walked to their deaths. They obeyed the Lord to the point of death. Do you know a mediator? Do you know a high priest? who was also obedient to the point of death. What Aaron and Moses' deaths remind us of in the storyline of the Bible is that we need a priest. We need a mediator who will not sin. Though Moses and Aaron were faithful and obedient, they also sinned. That was why they were not permitted to enter into the promised land. We need a priest and a mediator who will not sin, a priest and a mediator who will not die. Or better yet, who will not stay dead. We need a priest and a mediator who will triumph over sin and death. And who can be trusted as we travel through the wilderness of this world. Because he himself went through a wilderness too. Being tempted by the devil and coming out victorious and sinless. We need a mediator 
who will lead us home to the promised land of heaven. And we learn from the New Testament scriptures that Jesus is precisely that priest and mediator. Jesus never sinned against God like Moses or Aaron, like you or me. He never disobeyed God like Adam did, like Moses did, like Aaron did, like we have. Jesus was perfect in the sight of God. And yet he, like Aaron and Moses, went up to Mount Calvary to die. He was stripped of his robes and nailed to a cross. He was disgraced for your unbelief and my unbelief. He endured mockery and shame for your sin and my sin. He endured the wrath of God and the wages of your sin, the cost of your sin and my sin on the cross. He died on Mount Calvary. But three days after his death, God raised Jesus triumphantly from the grave so that we might be saved, so that we might be set free from our slavery to sin and assured of our home in heaven that it has been secured. Jesus, he saves all of those who come to him in repentance and faith. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to Jesus in faith today. The truth is, is that you and I are just like the people of Israel described here in the history of Numbers 33. We have complained, we have grumbled, and rebelled against God. You and I are just like Moses and Aaron. We too have struggled with our own unbelief. Friend, if you, you are in danger of being shut out of the promised land of heaven because of your unbelief, but you do not need to be. For Jesus, the great high priest and mediator, has lived and died and been triumphantly raised for sinners like you and me. And if you are struggling to believe, then make this your prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. And if you want to know more about what it means to come to Jesus in faith, to trust in him, and to believe in his triumph and the cross and resurrection, then talk with a friend or family member that you came with here this morning. Come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this wonderful and good news in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to speak to you as we conclude. Stepping back and surveying all of these campsites, can you see a few of the big lessons embedded in Israel's journey? God was with them there and there there and there. God has been with you there and there and there and everywhere you will go. Isn't one of the lessons that God is always with his people? Christian, isn't Jesus always with you by the power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't one of the main lessons of Numbers 33 that God is not only persevering with his people but preserving them along the way? As you look at the example of the obedience of Moses and Aaron highlighted in this chapter, remember Jesus' obedience. Remember that Jesus not only obeyed and entrusted himself to the Father, but also that his obedience and trust actually form, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, his obedience forms an example for us to follow. Let us trust him and follow him 
through the wilderness of this world, just as the people of Israel were to trust and follow God. And as we gather around this table here in a few moments, let us remember that we are doing so in obedience and faith. And may we continue to gather around this table in the fellowship of God's church as we continue to walk home to heaven. At this table, we remember God's triumph through Christ's death. And we remember our own history and travels to this point in time. And we remember that Jesus is the one who is leading us home, nourishing us and feeding us on the way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the work of our dear Savior. Father, we give you thanks for how he fulfills all of these stages of Israel's journey. How he's pictured and portrayed in the feeding of Israel from heaven. In the delivering water from the rock. Lord, we give you thanks that you have united us to him by the Spirit. And we pray that each day you would help us to remember his triumph over sin and death. And we pray and ask that you would give us strength to live in the resurrection power of his triumph each day. Lord, help us to trust you as we travel. Lord, help us to walk and follow after Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.